everybody. Together with Apple Books, I wanted to welcome you to the Oprah's Book Club podcast. This eight-part series is devoted to my latest book club selection, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. Now, if you don't have your copy yet, it is so easy to get it on Apple Books. The app for Apple Books is already right there on your phone or iPad. I'm still shocked when people don't realize they have it. It's the orange icon with the white book that's open, all right? You can just hit that, go to Apple Books, and by the time I finish this next sentence, you could have ordered cast for yourself. So do that if you don't have the book. We can all feel that this is an unsettled time. It almost feels like we could be breaking down, but also broken open. For some, it's really uncomfortable, even painful. For the past couple of years, the normal order of things is being questioned and ugly truths are being confronted. But I believe that this shift that we're feeling, if you allow it, is happening to awaken us, to shake us out of a culture that really never was as normal as we thought to begin with. So that's why I feel so strongly that my latest book club selection, Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, is one of the most important books, not only that I've ever read, and I read a lot of books in my lifetime, I think it's a must read for all of humanity, those of you who care, anybody who cares about the future of other human beings, especially for people who care about how they treat others, people who want to learn and grow and live a more open, harmonious life, and to understand why we are where we are in our culture, in our society, in our world. I'm so excited about the change that this book could bring that I did something I've never done before. I sent copies to the CEOs of the Fortune 100 companies, to the governors of all 50 states, the mayors of America's largest cities, the presidents of HBCUs and other major universities and colleges, as well as team owners for the NFL, the NBA, the WNBA, and also the heads of large media and tech companies. That's how passionately I believe in this book cast. So then I asked the Pulitzer Prize winning author, Isabel Wilkerson, if she would join me in a series of conversations for Apple Podcasts to talk about what this book means and can mean for our world. And she said yes. And Isabel Wilkerson and I are joined by readers. Hello, readers. Hi. Many of them, hi, have lived the experiences that Isabel writes about in CAST, or they have been inspired by this book to challenge the status quo in their own lives. There are people who have read and now feel open to have this conversation. So hello, Professor Isabel Wilkerson, and welcome to to all of our readers. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. So before we dive into Pillar 1, Isabel, let's uh, first define the word cast, C-A-S-T-E. What is it? Cast is an artificial, arbitrary ranking of human value in a society, and it is what determines one's standing, one's stature, one's uh, assumptions of intelligence, even uh, beauty, even of worthiness. It determines one's access to resources or deprivation or lack thereof. It essentially defines the contours of where one is positioned 
in a hierarchy. And the hierarchy, of course, the United States dates back for 400 years to the founding of the country. Before there was the United States, the colonies uh, established a hierarchy, a ranking of human value on the basis of the colonists, the English colonists as the dominant group, and those who were brought in to be enslaved as the subordinated group, and then those whose land was stolen and whose numbers were decimated. Uh, the indigenous people who were driven off the land in some ways cast out of this hierarchy and what emerged as a bipolar hierarchy that we live with the sh under the shadow of to this day. All right, so you have seen, as well as I've seen, and I'm sure those of you who are readers too, if you're on social media, you've seen that uh, Isabel's comparisons of a caste in the United States to some of the brutal policies under Nazi Germany and also the caste system in India is really upsetting some people because a lot of people want to think of America as the land of the free and this is the land of opportunity and the land of limitless possibility. A lot of people are upset that I, who have benefited so much from this opportunity to live in a land where only in America could I do what I've been able to do and achieve what I've been able to achieve, but working also in the midst of a caste system that looked at me as a young girl as not worthy of that achievement. So Isabel, how do you first begin to realize that number one, America is built on a caste system and explain your success, my success, and so many other successes of people in the subordinate caste within a caste system. Well, in a caste system, you are assigned a place that has nothing to do with anything you have done. You're born into it. Uh, heredity is one of the things we'll be getting into. And as a result of that, it's not through any fault or doing of your own that you're assigned to a particular place. This is historic, going back for many, many centuries and generations. And yet, when you look at what caste is, caste is the infrastructure of our division. So caste is the bones. Race is the skin. It's the visible manifestation of where a person is assigned in the caste system. And then the third characteristic is class. Class being the accent, the diction, the education, the bearing, the clothes, the things that we can control about ourselves. And so those things can all coexist, but underneath all of that is the infrastructure that then takes precedence because if you can act your way out of it, it's class. If you cannot act your way out of it, it's caste. And so you can account for all of the successes, all of the achievement, uh, the bearing, the diction, all of those things. And in an instant, a person who's been born to historically what has been deemed the subordinated caste can be intruded upon and reminded of their historic place in the caste system. There is a case out of the UK where the editor of British Vogue, one of the most sophisticated and best dressed persons on the planet, was walking into his office building and the security guard stopped him and told him he needed to take the freight elevator to his own office yeah. as the editor of British Vogue. Yeah. So that is an example of how yeah. in an instant, regardless of one's successes, you can still be reminded mm -hmm. and put back in your place. Cass is about boundaries and restrictions when it comes to expectations of who should be where and who should be doing what. It is why being in a, another country where I was not recognized as a, quote, celebrity, and I'm in a store and I'm asking the woman, can you please show me that bag? And she literally refused to show me the bag and said to me, you should look at these bags down here because you can't afford it. 
So it's assuming that because of the color of my skin that I would not be able to afford the bag. That is within what you're talking about, that, that caste system. And the same thing that happened to the editor Vogue. Mm -hmm. I make the distinction between that and racism because in those cases, people might say, I wasn't racist, I have a best friend who's black. People will say those kinds of things. So it's, it's an unconscious, it's an autonomic recognition on the part of people who've been programmed. You know, all of us have been programmed in the hierarchy. Uh, an autonomic assumption about where a person should be based solely on the right. physical cue of where the signifier of where a person who looks like that belongs in the hierarchy. Right. And so they could say to themselves, I'm not racist. I just didn't think that you belonged here. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Pillar number one is titled Divine Will and the Law of Nature. And you write that the word of God is used to justify the kidnap and enslavement of millions of human beings and whatever tortures attended their enslavement. Explain why the caste system was ascribed to God rather than the humans who created it. Well, a caste system often develops because certain things need to be done in a society. In our country, there was wilderness that needed to be developed in the minds and desires of the colonists, and they needed the work to be done. So they brought people across the Atlantic and enslaved them. And in order to do that, there needed to be some justification as to why they were going to be doing that. So the rationalization was to go to the Bible, to go to scripture, and to take some type of inspiration and justification from the story of Noah, whose son Ham happened to see him unclothed and was thus cursed for having done so. Ham was viewed as he was told that he and his descendants would be enslaved. That was the curse. And it was said that people of African descent, people from Africa, were the descendants of Ham and thus carried that stigma, carried that curse with them, and thus were assigned to, deemed to be servants, slaves to those who were uh, ascribed as above them for all their days. So let's hear from our readers. Ben was part of our Apple TV Plus conversation with Professor uh, Ibram X. Kendi about his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And after we taped that show, I was so inspired by how open and eager you all were. I sent them all a copy of Cast, as I sent to lots of other people. And Ben is a minister of a predominantly white church who told me that he was is, is struggling to talk about race with his congregation. And I want to know, has it become easier since you've been educating yourself? Yeah, um, it's good to see you again, Oprah. I'm so happy to be back here. And it's nice to meet you, um, Isabel. And I'm just looking forward to this conversation. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure if I would use the word easier yeah. to describe what it's been like since the last episode. Uh, in some ways, I would actually say it's been harder. Harder because there are those who um, still don't want to have a conversation. Yeah. and have made that more known to me or who have distanced themselves more from me. Uh, but also harder because more people have been sharing their story with me. And so now all of a sudden, I'm the recipient of everyone's story, what you know, good or bad, uh, their life experiences. And that can be a lot to take in at one time and um, not necessarily bad, but, but hard. Uh, I would say, though, not only has it been harder, I would say it's been better. I would say it's been better because uh, of the people who have uh, watched the show and who have realized that it's possible to talk about these things without being hostile, without being uh, mean-spirited, but to actually have an honest 
human conversation. Uh, and so that's really opened a lot of doors uh, for me since then. I've had people who I haven't talked to in four or five years calling me saying, I'm going to use this episode in my workplace to have a conversation with coworkers, you know, and all of a sudden people are communicating to me that they're much more open. And that's where I've been trying to focus my time uh, engaging with people who have been open to, to talking about. Well, I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad to hear that because I thought that your being on the show about how to be an anti-racist with uh, Professor uh, Kendi, Ibram X. Kendi, that you would take a lot of heat from your congregation because as Isabel refers to in the very beginning of the book, talking about the old house uh, metaphor, that so many people don't want these things stirred up. You know, there are a lot of white people who feel that even talking about these issues is stirring up trouble but we're trying to do what uh, John Lewis said, stir up some good trouble here, but stirring up things that are from the past that they had nothing to do with. And so did you hear a lot of that from people who are like, why are, why are we even still talking about this? Yeah, you know, I've been hearing that uh, for a while. Uh, I wouldn't say, you know, that remark necessarily has increased, but I think at this point, um, and I, I wanna be careful, you know, I would, I would say it's not just, um, I want to put a marker on my church, church specifically. There's a lot of amazing people in my church, and I love my church. But the white evangelical context as a whole, um, and the people that I know within that context, I would say at this point, there's a number of people who are starting to just write me off and to just yeah. disengage and distance themselves. And again, um, I've kind of accepted that this is the call that God has put on my life, and I'm going to take some heat, and I'm going to absorb some blows. That's that's the role that I'm called to, but also to go and focus with the people who want to be a part of change, and that's we're uh, open to hearing to focus it. My energy. Yeah, that's how I feel about cast in general. I, I feel like choosing it as a, a Oprah's Book Club selection. First of all, I expected everybody to receive it the way I like. Like, whoa, to be open-hearted about it. I was surprised when you know I started getting these attacks about it, and I'm like, well, okay, then if you cannot receive it in the spirit in which I'm offering it, then I'm not talking to you. I'm only only here to offer it to people <laughs> who can receive and are open to it. Because when you start to read it, if your heart isn't open by reading it and you immediately become defensive and shut down, then it means that you're, you're not ready. Uh, so when did you think, uh, what did you think actually, Ben, when you learned that the caste system in America is rooted in the Bible, that that's really the, the first pillar that Isabel talks about? I've been on my, I guess what we can call an anti-racist journey for a few years now. And so reading a lot of history that I wasn't taught, whether in high school, college, grad school, uh, reading a lot of books, reading a lot of perspectives that I sim simply hadn't been exposed to. And so there's been a lot of emotions I've been feeling the last few years, uh, you know, going, diving deeper into this subject, uh, feeling a lot of being heartbroken, uh, feeling a lot of pain, anger, confusion, um, uh, uncomfortable, certainly. And so coming to, you know, the book cast, I mean, um, it, it was helpful in a sense to start using this word, but in another sense, I would just say, and I think everyone knows that there's so much more that could have been said. Uh, I mean, in a sense, there was, it's much worse than what was in the book. Uh, and I know you had were limited for space, but the history of white Christians in this area is so devastating. It's so devastating. And so now um, applying the word caste to it as a new terminology, um, 
it's again just a lot of emotion a lot of pain confusion frustration did you have a question for isabel yeah um so i i'm a minister uh i'm a christian minister and i i believe in my faith i believe the words of jesus i believe as dr king said that jesus is eternally right so my question for you is with this idea of caste that just seems so uh, uh, permanent almost that it's 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 lasting for years and, and centuries how does how do we go about dismantling it if if religion if faith is this core pillar at the foundation how do we begin to address caste and to take down caste uh, if something like this is at the foundation would you say uh, that uh, you know for someone like me is it possible to preserve my faith and address caste or do you think that my whole f faith religion needs to be torn down uh, in order to address this this problem <laughs> isabel is not going to tell you to give up jesus she is not going to tell you to give up jesus i know that <laughs> well I, I know that i know that but man it seems we're like not giving up jesus task. good lord ben <laughs> All right, Isabel, go go for it. Well, I, I would say, first of all, that uh, remember that the, this first pillar, all of the pillars are, in fact, justifications for the hierarchy that was created. These were created by people who felt they needed to divide up people, human beings, in order to achieve their goals. That means if it was created by man using the Bible, and I would say misusing, uh, misinterpreting the Bible, uh, in order to justify what they wanted to do means that if it can be created by man, it can be dismantled by man, for one thing. But another thing I would say is that, remember that these were creations to such a degree that, you know, color is a fact, but race is a social construct. These are creations, these are divisions that uh, have been around for so long that we take them to be the laws of nature, but they are not the laws of nature. There's a, there's a quote uh, in the book, and I'm not going to necessarily get it correct, but it's as if it's saying that caste divides what God never intended to be divided. You know, if we are all God's right. creation, then there is no mistake. To, to quote someone from The Warmth of the Suns, Ida Mae Gladney said that God doesn't make any mistakes. There are no mistakes. So that means every human being is a beautiful creation, a beautiful manifestation of God and of the Creator, if one believes that, and that we all have something to give, we all have something to share, we all have something to learn from others, and to recognize how much we all have in common and to recognize that we can learn and to grow by truly understanding and connecting with the mind and the soul and the spirit and the heart of another person. I believe that this transcends these lines of division and that a true understanding and appreciation of the spiritual tenets would allow us to be able to see that for ourselves and to build upon it. Thanks. Thanks for that answer. Erica, you wanted to say what? While I was reading the book, actually before I got to the section on caste and religion, I thought of a scripture actually from the Old Testament that I know Christians use a lot of times or had used the Bible to justify their actions. But if you read in the scriptures, um, it kind of was eye-opening, all of the things that have gone on in our country and how much of I don't, an oxymoron it was. I, if you don't mind, I have the scripture pulled up on my phone. Um, it's Isaiah 5, 
and it's verse 20, and it says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And that's what I thought of a lot of times when I was reading that these people that were setting up the infrastructure of our country based on this caste system were using a perverted version of the Bible, and they were putting evil for good and darkness for light. Good point, Erica. Yeah, Melba, you're saying what? I'm 78 years of age and from Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, and so I'm from the very center of the establishment of Jim Crow. Let me tell you, my dears, though, not one word of what you wrote isn't true. And I don't know because I've had an opportunity to live every word, every sentence. So anyone who says that this isn't true about America should check with me. They should check with what <laughs> it meant when I took a whole set of troops to go to Central High School. They should check what it meant when I was four years of age and I was taught by my parents, step off the sidewalk if you bump into a white man. They should check what it means to sit in a church when you're five years of age and watch the handyman of the neighborhood hanged by the Ku Klux Klan. They should check what it means to stand in line and wait for the rope that's over the tree for you. So don't tell me everything you've said plus 10 is not correct. I ought to know it. I've lived every moment of it. Thank you very much for putting it on paper. I've been there. Thank you, Melba. Part of the Little Rock Nine, lived it and experienced it. We're gonna be hearing more from you. So, Isabel, you traveled to India and learned that the Indian caste system has four class levels, but the fifth class is so low, they're not even considered a part of the system, the untouchables or the Dalits. And what did you learn about the Dalits? Well, I learned that the Dalits are restricted because of lineage, but more importantly, identified as unclean or polluted as a result of the work that they are assigned to do, the work that passes down through the generations, which is what also connects us to, to our country in which the people who were uh, brought in as a result of that first pillar of the idea of the descendants of Ham who were fit only for the dirtiest, most dangerous work. That's where we share the same impulse, the same assignment of being at the very lowest scale of the hierarchy, of doing the mm. dirtiest work, which then affirms, that all of this is self-affirming reaffirming justification for the hierarchy to begin with. So you do the dirtiest work and then you are seen thus as polluting and thus seen as lower because you're doing the work that's the only work that you're committed to do, which obviously we'll be getting into with the other pillars. But what I learned is that this group, who were historically known as the Untouchables and now known as Dulits, had been assigned to the lowest ranking, so low that they were outside of the system and were to stay as many as 96 paces away from those who were deemed above them, and they were to just be honored with the scraps that fell from the table of those who were deemed dominant. Yeah, and that the very shadow on the street, the if a higher caste person walked through, that the very shadow would somehow diminish the other, other person. And, and what I think it really brings home, the comparison of uh, black Americans and Indian untouchables, is the story that you tell about Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr. in his uh, trip to India in 1959, I think it was, and he walks into the room. Uh, you, you tell the story. 
Yeah, well, he was visiting. He was visiting India because he wanted to see the land of Mohandas K. Gandhi, whose whose nonviolent approach he, he admired and and obviously took upon himself uh, in his work. And so he arrives in India and he's greeted by the prime minister and treated as a visiting dignitary. And then on his trip, he visits a school, a school that is run by uh, people who were then known as untouchables. And when the schoolmaster, when the principal introduces him to the to the students, he says, "Young people." I want to introduce you to a fellow untouchable from the United States of America. And when this principal said that, Dr. King was a little surprised and, and a bit peeved to be identified in that way. He didn't see himself in that way. He just had dinner with the prime minister. He had a PhD, speaking of class mm -hmm. and all that we were speaking about. And then he thought about it. He thought about it. He remembered that he was, even at that moment, advocating on behalf of 20 million uh, people who were at the bottom of the hierarchy in the United States, the vast majority not permitted to vote, not permitted to use public facilities, and being attacked viciously for their attempts to get human and civil rights for themselves in this country. And so he thought about it and he said, yes, I am an untouchable. I am an untouchable and every Negro in America is an untouchable. He made that connection. He himself, Dr. Martin Luther King, made the connection between the caste system in India and the hierarchy that existed in the United States. I know, Dr. King, I can't we just see him going, what, who, me, an untouchable? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, put it in perspective. Anu Gupta he was born into the highest caste in India, and he grew up with housemaids and servants until your family moved to the United States when you were about, what, 10 years old. And um, what happened after you moved here? Yeah, so first of all, I want to just thank you all for inviting me to this conversation. Thank you, Oprah and uh, Ms. Wilkerson. Thank you so much for writing this book. Um, I was already a huge fan of yours after your first book, but this book has really just been transformatively healing for me. And it goes directly to the question Oprah just asked me. Um, so I was born into a very high caste in India and was literally oblivious to the caste system, um, even though it was all around me, everywhere I went. Um, basically, the Dalits, which is those are the untouchables, are people that we don't interact with at all in Indian society. They're the ones that are cleaning sewers and latrines. And from very early on, there was a sense that I was taught by my parents and my family members that don't touch them, they're dirty. So I really grew up in a society that cultivated in me that there was a sense of superiority almost, an entitlement that I felt within. And then I moved here when I was 10 years old and suddenly I was no longer the dominant caste and rather I was part of the subordinate caste or what you call the middle caste. So through elementary school and middle school, I was very, very terribly bullied from being called Osama bin Laden to treehead to raghead to a whole host of other racial slurs and the, ra the racism that I experienced, particularly in my teenage years, was so bad that I uh, basically didn't want to be associated with my Indian culture whatsoever. I didn't eat Indian food in public. I would distance myself from my parents um, and not want to be seen with them outside. I pretended not to understand any Indian languages. But more importantly, I changed my name to Andy. And all of this was really, really heartbreaking, but I wanted to be part of the dominant caste. I wanted to be as closely related to whites. And if you think about it, in the mid-90s and the 90s, you could either be white, black, or other. So I was in the other category. And as another, I wanted to be closer to that dominant caste. But all of this really came to a shattering um, downfall because in my early 20s, I was severely depressed and I almost attempted to take my life. And 
a lot of that was because of the internalized racism, the internalized torture I felt around being not being enough and constantly needing to prove myself because of the way I looked and my name and my heritage. Um, and then reading this book, you know, and after that, of course, I got help. I didn't do it, thankfully. Um, and for me, it became, oh, yeah, I've experienced a lot of racism. So racism became this thing. But it wasn't racism. This book has made that clear for me now, that deeper inside, it was cast once again. You know, cast, as you say, is the bones and race is the skin. Um, so I saw that, wow, everything that we see in America right now is this caste system. And not belonging to the dominant caste was what I was trying to do all of this time. That was your big aha. Yeah. Reading the book. Well, um, in 1950s, the India's uh, constitution banned discrimination on the basis of caste, but uh, reports say that despite the laws, caste identities appear to remain strong in India. Uh, would you agree with that, Anu? Absolutely. And how are you treated when you go back? Are you treated based upon your, your name, your name, Gupta? Absolutely. You know, in the book, there are various instances where, you know, you talk about uh, Ms. Wilkerson around how you could just tell what a caste a person is by the way they move, you know, by the way they move around other people. And I feel that sense of comfort when I go back to India. And it's not something that I've been taught. It's something I've really been conditioned to have. Um, and, mm. you know, even though very much mm. like the U.S., and, you know, I'm, I've worked as a lawyer here, we have all sorts of anti-discrimination laws on the books, but we see so much oppression, particularly towards African-Americans and other oppressed groups. In India, it's just so wired into the everyday fabric. Um, so I'll give you one example. When I went to India for the first time uh, in 2004, I was studying abroad there. This was the summer of the highest numbers of Dalit suicides, Dalit farmer suicides. So this is basically what we call sharecropping in America, that very similar system that's instituted in India uh, for untouchables. And when I would talk about this with people I was with, there was very little empathy that they felt to the deaths of these individuals. And some people went as far as telling me that they're just genetically inferior. And that was really hard for me to hear. And this goes to like a question that I've been kind of grappling with myself is, you know, ask someone who's in the middle caste, right? Who's a dominant caste in one society and now a subordinate caste in this society. Are there ways that the way Indian Americans may be or people of Indian origins in Western societies similar to how white Americans behave um, with, you know, doubting or not believing the experiences of Black Americans and others? I wanted to say, first of all, um, that I feel such tremendous empathy for what you endured as someone who was forced to almost find a way to navigate a bipolar system and then getting caught in the crossfire of identity here in this country where what you look like becomes the marker of where you are assigned in the caste system. One of the things that happens with people in the middle castes or what are called biracial people is that there's this need. You know that there's a caste system when there's this need, it seems, for people to place you. People won't stop until they know where exactly are you from. And if a person who is of ambiguous origin, one might say, you know, to say that you're from 
Chicago is not enough. They want to know where are you actually from. And so this runs deep in a hierarchy to try to figure out how are you to be treated? How am I to see you? And the only way I can see you is to know where you fit. And it's heartbreaking and wrenching for me to hear about what you had to endure. And the fact that you are the same person, the exact same person, but you go into one hierarchy and you're dominant caste and you go into another hierarchy and your middle caste may be moving toward subordinated caste in some manner when you're the same person, which is a reminder of how artificial and arbitrary all of this is. The same person experiencing mm -hmm. different treatment depending upon where you happen to be. This is the whole point of this is to show how very arbitrary it is and how we have to find ways to transcend it in order to see the full humanity of whoever we might be interacting with at that moment. Isabel, what do you most want our readers to understand about Pillar One? I want people to understand that this justification is merely a rationalization for what they wanted to do anyway. And this is what they happen to have chosen. And it gave the veneer of a God-given law of nature that suggested that it was rigid and unyielding, when in fact, it isn't. I mean, the point of this, it may, a caste system appears to be rigid and unyielding, but it's only that way because we permit it to be. And that's why looking at this and recognizing the misinterpretation of a particular scripture can do such tremendous damage because it's a misinterpretation for the use and exploitation of the people who wish to misunderstand it. Thank you, Ben and Anu, for sharing your takeaways from caste. Pillar 2 is next, and it's called Heritability about the breeding and genetics of the caste system. If you haven't already, head to Apple Books to get your copy of Cast. You can get the audiobook too in an instant. If you'd rather listen, you can get the audiobook. Bye everybody. <laughs>